Welcome back to Creators in Motion by Portrait Displays. In this episode, I am joined by Jean Bolte. You may have spotted her in the Disney Plus series, Light and Magic. Jean's journey at Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, began back in 1987, where she made her mark as a model maker on the transformation sequence in the movie Willow. This marked the beginning of her groundbreaking work with ILM's Morph technology. Throughout her career, Jean has made significant contributions to some of the most iconic movies of our time. From her role as model project supervisor at ILM's Model and Creature Shop, to her work as texture supervisor on films like the Star Wars prequels, Men in Black, Iron Man, and Pacific Rim, her expertise has left an indelible mark. Her latest work can be seen in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and the new Indiana Jones, where she contributed to the groundbreaking de-aging techniques used in the films. Her contributions have been recognized with numerous awards and nominations, including a Visual Effects Society Award for her work on Deepwater Horizon. Join us in this episode of Creators in Motion as we explore the extraordinary career of Jean Bolte. My name's Jean Bolte, and I, uh, my career has been largely spent at ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. I worked there for 35 years and only recently resigned from the company and retired to do my own work. Awesome. Okay, just some warm-up questions. Do you have a favorite movie, and what is it? My favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. The reason is because I find it astonishing what David Lean and those filmmakers were able to do, but taking all those people, camels, equipment into the desert, and having those astonishing wide shots shot live action without any visual effects whatsoever. My career most recently has been in visual effects, but knowing that uh, what was possible back then that seemed impossible is one of the reasons I find it so astonishing. Plus, it's just a, an extraordinary story. I mean, it's a very, very beautiful movie. So yeah, that's movie. probably my top one. Okay, what medium interests you that you haven't explored yet? I have a great interest in going back to very simple, crude, I guess you could say crude, mechanics. Uh, spending the last sort of 20 years in computer graphics um, was working computer graphics had has and had great rewards for me but it did take me away from things that that where I was working physically and so what I want to do is go back to early like Victorian automata where you turn a crank and it, 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 it you, the, you work out that there's a mechanism inside that makes something move. Um, and part, I think in some ways, part of my desire to do that may be a reaction to what I see happening with AI. And that each time we take a step with technology, we, it, things go further and further into a black box. And I try not, I'm, I actually am a great supporter of learning new technology. I think that we embrace AI and what it will bring to us. 
but it also makes me really value and curious about the things that are extremely tangible and yet still very complicated. So I want to learn to have like an arcade piece, you know, from a Victorian uh, era and, um, and know that, when, uh, that, that I know how that thing works from start to finish. Oh, that would be so cool. What is your favorite working environment? Like whether that's home, the studio, the office? My favorite working environment is where I am right now, which I, having stepped down from ILM, I'm, in some ways I'm still, in many ways I feel like I'm actually more back at ILM than ever because what I have done is taken studio space at the model shop, which is on Kerner, uh, where George, George's first place was in Van Nuys, but then when he brought the team up to San Rafael, he, he wanted to start fresh. He wanted to be in a place where he was not being influenced. And so he decided to create this, this little film studio there. And it's still there, but it's in a much diminished uh, capacity, it's, I mean, in terms of, of, of the, the number of buildings and space there. But the model shop still is in the same space where I, that it is now. And that's where I have set up shop. So there's all the wood tools that I want, and there's all the paints and all the, the supplies and a vac form machine and a spray booth and rattle cans and um, all the things that, that I loved when I was working in the model shop are all available to me. And in addition to that, the, all the, the, not all, but a lot of the model shop people and other filmmakers, the, the, the guys who, who did the pyro, one of them stopped in and gave me ideas. They come in and they see what I'm working on and they give me input and ideas and they'll come back with the material that they've, oh, I've got this special, you know, thing that they use to pave roads and you, and you might want to use this. And so I'm getting that kind of, uh, collaborative environment and I think artists really benefit from not working alone mm -hmm. and so I'm very happy in that space but I also really love just to, to be in a paint studio where at my home or working with other artists um, and just have it just be me and the subject matter as well so I'm, I'm doing both of those things but the great pleasure I have to say is to be back in the model shop again yeah that sounds fun Okay, last kind of quick question. Is there a piece of art that you've experienced that still sits with you or stands out in your mind today? Right now, I would have to say my favorite piece of art is the Da Vinci Virgin on the Rocks. And there's a story behind that. I read uh, Walter Isaacson's biography of Da Vinci, which is an extraordinary book. And it gave me such respect for what Da Vinci did because he he was a completely embraced he completely embraced the idea that science and art are not divisible and he did studies on how water would eddy into pools and how hair would curl and uh, how to get skin tones to, to 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 work and have depth and light in them and one of his greatest pieces is Virgin of the Rocks and I was in London um, not too long ago, and I wandered into the National Gallery, and I wandered down the hall and came face to face with the Virgin on the Rocks, which I didn't even know was in that gallery. I mean, that was just, it just, there I was. 
And it brought me to tears. And the reason it brought me to tears was because I had read Walter Isaacson's biography. And then I had an understanding of what da Vinci, what he did in order to make that painting what it was. So um, to me, that was kind of like the really, uh, I think that that is a synthesis of, of, of things. Like it's, it's, it's the artist himself and it's the science. It's, and it's understanding from a great writer what it took to make this painting and all of that was brought to me and then I found myself standing right there in front of it so um, that was very moving and uh, un kind of unforgettable moment for me mm -hmm. yeah. you didn't even need these quick fire questions okay we can get started into more of the long form ones I know you kind of just talked about your career a little bit but before we get actually started can you just look into the camera and give the audience a brief summary about who you are and what you do I have spent 35 years working at Industrial Light and Magic, and that uh, was encompassed both working in the model shop and practical, and working in computer graphics, and the the span between those, which um, uh, so I was witness to, you know, several stages of change at ILM. I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, but before that, I was working in London. I mean, my very first start was working in the theater and the theater in London. Um, I was an illegal alien that was paid cash in hand. This was very common in England. You uh, really didn't have to have a whole lot of proof of um, whether you were, uh, you know, uh, permits and things. A lot of people just flew under the radar and so it was very easy for me to go there and work. And theater was a great place to be, to learn collaboration and also learn a lot of skills. State, uh, you know, um, props and costumes and and um, wigs. I learned how to do that in a sort of sweatshop, and um, all of that proved to be useful to me later on in life. Also, they paid almost nothing, so they were really, really happy to hire people. Um, and you know, I had seven roommates, and I could afford to do that. Uh, so the theater was actually a great starting place for me. I don't know what it's like now in our industry for, for if, if it's how beneficial it is to work in the theater, but I can only imagine it would be. Um, plus it kind of is a community. So after the theater then, they, uh, there in London, uh, a lot of big budget special effects movies were being made at Elstree Studios in Pinewood and George Lucas was one of them. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, I think it was Indiana Jones, when he was scouting around for, well, I got a call to, to work from on, on a, a movies because they were hunting for people that had skills to work to fill up these. I was shocked, you know. I got a call out of the blue: "Can you come out to Elstree and work on this movie?" And it was Tobe Hooper's Life Force, which um, kind of a horror film. And it went from there. So George Lucas uh, was scouting around for people to um, work on his movies. And because I was an American, I, I uh, got a call up. Could I go work at Industrial Light and Magic in San Rafael? So I was so happy to do that. Um, it was always, you know, I looked through that book, the making of, you know, the first ILM book, and I was so stunned at, that people could work outside. And it was always a sunny day. <laughs> London was, was starting to wear me out. Um, so I, I took the opportunity to go to ILM and that's where I remained uh, for 35 years. 
Were you always drawn to the arts even as a child? Were you a very artistic child? As a child, and I think like all children, actually, I loved making things. I think this is a very, very natural thing. And, and in fact, I don't believe in using the term artist to describe myself. I think that is a, a term, uh, I just saw the John Singer Sargent show um, at the Legion of Honor. Okay, that's an artist. I am somebody who likes to make things. I enjoy painting, I enjoy collaborating. And I think that, that this is such a natural thing that most, most people, I think, have it in them to enjoy creating and, and, and using, you know, art supplies. I've never met a child who didn't want to do that. So it, yeah, this my my early memories are always of of making things, but I suspect that I'm not unusual in that. Mm -hmm. I think what may be unusual and an advantage I had was that I was not discouraged to continue doing that. What do you think drew you to London in the first place? I plotted from an early age to go to London. I remember being in grade school and walking home from school and knowing that I wanted to be somewhere else. I, I, I still love my hometown and, and my family. I, I, was, I was raised well with wonderful people and, and talented people in my family. But I found that being in the Midwest was... was I was not being exposed to a lot in the Midwest there. Um, and there was an art gallery called the Nelson Atkins Gallery of Art that is one of the finest galleries in the world. I maintain that to this day. And it was my great salvation. I used to go there. Um, Mom used to drop me off, and I would just spend hours. I knew every single piece in that gallery. And I still do when I walk in there, and the, the place and the smell of it just takes me back to my childhood. Uh, and some of it was terrifying, you know, the modern stuff, the... the, the um, Warhols and things, huge, you know. Uh, and then there was all, the, but they had multicultural Asian art, you know, uh, antiquities and all sorts of things in there that um, I knew there was, there were very, very beautiful things in the world, but I wasn't really necessarily getting exposed to them where I was. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go to another country to study as soon as I can. And that was uh, just a given. So London made sense to me because I didn't have to learn a language to live there. Mm -hmm. So I set my sights on that and uh, when I turned 19 I, um, I went to school mm -hmm. at, uh, uh, in University, University of London and then I returned to London because I had felt so at home there. Are you a very strategic-minded person? Like, did you plan for that to happen? I know some people, they feel certain points in their career just happen because they're at the right place at the right time. I know also with you making the change from practical effects into computer graphics, that was super timely and obviously worked in your favor. Is that something you found yourself doing? Since a young age, have you always plotted goals for yourself? Or is that just a natural progression for you? I think the only time that I really made, uh, that, I, that I feel that I had a plan, was um, leaving Kansas City. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I feel terrible saying that because I'm still, I still, it wasn't like that was an awful childhood for me, but that I just wanted to be, to see the world. After that, I did not have a plan. The whole of my career has been a fairly circuitous, circuitous route. 
even the fact that when I uh, was lucky enough to be hired at ILM, it was not a strategic plan for me to move through the changes. And they just, I would follow whatever looked interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I was extremely blessed to be frequently be at the right place at the right time where big changes were happening. And I was allowed to witness them and, uh, and then take part. I know in Light and Magic, George Lucas calls the people at ILM a gang of outsiders. Do you think that's true? And is that what made you want to join in the first place? George Lucas called, called rightfully called his, his early team a gang of outsiders. He himself, George, was definitely an outsider. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was able through George's, I think, incredibly instinctual feeling about people that he knew who to gather together and create a place where these outsiders could thrive. I mean, also, if you look at George Lucas's casting of his early you know, American graffiti, and he could spot talent um, and and get people early in their careers who went on to become extraordinarily famous actors. And so George set up this 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 place in Van Nuys where uh, there was great risks were being taken and people were not following a plan, and which is very much how George Lucas himself liked to operate. When I arrived at Industrial Light and Magic, I think that what it was for me was like a family. It was the, the, the gang of outsiders who had set that place up and set it in motion were also an extraordinarily uh, un their egos were very, they, they, they had very low, little ego in their work. They were passionate about what they were doing, but there was also this incredible egalitarian feeling in, in the place. And once you were brought in to ILM, or at least once I saw most people were brought into ILM, they were accepted and they were um, encouraged to come back. And, 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 and be part of this kind of core team. So what, I think that ILM was definitely encouraged that sense of, of innovation, but I don't think it was any longer a, a place of outsiders. It was a place that just existed on its own and was supported, it was, everyone supported each other in that. I know I've heard accounts from people working on the original Star Wars movie that were like, okay, this is going to be some kind of B-movie. Like they didn't think it would amount to much, so they couldn't see the vision. What do you think it is about ILM that's made it such a successful entity? Obviously, it's still making blockbuster movies today. I, I think that the reason that ILM has been such a successful place is that early on, George hired the right people, and they set the bar very, very high. And we always knew that. When we got hired at ILM, you had to bring it. You had to be really, really good at what you were doing. Um, and there's a kind of sense that uh, one is working at a legendary company. And that has not changed. There's been a, a lot of reason why it would have changed, because the the company has have has studios in other countries. It's not this isolated, you know, kind of supportive place in uh, away from LA up in Northern California. And yet 
um, I still think that there's a sense that this is what people expect when they come to ILM and that we will deliver it. Yeah, I love that. Do you have a favorite project? And it doesn't even have to be a movie. It could just be something you worked on in the model shop, maybe a specific creature or sculpture you really liked. Pro projects? Um, what project do I feel most proud of? That I, I, the fact is, there isn't anything that I particularly felt stood out for me because I found something, I know this may sound like I am, it may sound like I'm making this up, but I'm not. I found something in every project I ever worked on and I think it is important to find that thing. For example, one of the things that was a high point for me in my memory was a control cat litter commercial. And we made cats. I, we made a, I was kind of in charge of that spot, and, and uh, there were a couple of cats who were talking about their cat litter on a fence. And I had as much pride in that as I have had in working on Star Wars movies, Avenger movies. Um, we made a Godzilla for a Nike spot that I loved. Um, working on Indiana Jones. I, there's something every time that... that I find takes me to where I'm doing something I've never done before and um, working with a crew that I love working with and that's what matters. For people who don't know or kind of just can't even wrap their head around what the model shop was like, I know there probably wasn't an exact same day to day every day but could you just talk a little bit about what a, the day in the life of a person working in the model shop would have been? The model shop was a playground, mm -hmm. and there was every kind of thing going on in there. And when it was at its busiest, there would be someone sculpting something in clay, there would be somebody sculpting something out of uh, urethane foam to make a landscape or make a mountain, there would be uh, people working on the mechanics, so you know, uh, doing some electronics that go in, uh, that are part of that. Um, the, the mold room, that was actually a very important room where uh, once something was sculpted, it would be um, made a mold of so it be, could be cast in rubber or urethane or whatever material was necessary. Um, so there was always a tremendous amount of variety walking around. Uh, people painting. I loved going up in the, in, in, into the uh, scenic painters department, the matte painters. Um, and just watching them work uh, just so, so carefully and making these incredibly beautiful um, matte paintings. There was the camera department, uh, camera engineering, and of course there was stuff that was being shot on the stage. So at any given day, there was a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of fascinating things to look at. And that was, in fact, kind of... It had a mixed feeling. You knew who was doing the big important work because it was very visible. You could see the team of guys, mostly guys, but there were some women too, making giant airplanes, you know, hanging in the, in the, in the shop and detailing all those out. Um, somebody sculpting, sculpting a huge Statue of Liberty. Um, and in some ways that I found, as much as I loved that, I thought it was also very interesting when I joined the computer graphics department that people were all, no matter what your job was, 
when you looked around the room, you couldn't tell who was doing the big important work and who was doing something that might not be considered quite so exciting or dramatic, because everybody's job mattered. And there was a kind of a nice, nice atmosphere in there uh, that was a little, was a huge contrast, just the sort of big, you know, important things, ego kind of building things that were happening in the model shop. I know in Light and Magic you talk about computer graphics as being the great equalizer. Could you sense that the jobs were moving away from practical effects and into computer graphic arts? Well, it was some, something I loved about the computer graphics department was I felt like everybody did, you know, everybody, nobody felt like they were um, more important, except there were still egos. And I can't say that nobody felt that they were more important. There were some very key people who deservedly were, uh, deserved credit for the breakthroughs that they were doing. I mean, specifically, I can point to Steve Williams, Spaz, and Mark DePay, and the, 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 those innovators were extraordinary. What they did is astonishing and was at the time, and it was very disruptive. But we also fully knew who they were and what they were doing. So I can't say that there weren't egos in the computer graphics department as well. But generally speaking, the team of people um, in, in, in CG were, um, I, I felt like w there was kind of a leveling there, that we all mattered, that we were all uh, doing something that was crucial to the final product, which was always the case in any of our collaborative work in the model shop as well. But um, it was just a little bit more of a, um, it just was a little more egalitarian to feel like, you know, it, it was whatever your job was. Um, mm -hmm. You didn't, you, you, you weren't given special attention for it necessarily. Working in the model shop when, well, Okay, I'll, I'm going to start from when I first came to Industrial Light and Magic. I was asked, asked to work on Willow. Willow had a transformation sequence in it that involved taking one model and they developed, the, Doug Smythe developed the word morph to describe what was happening, was that there was a computer program that took pixels and blended one model into another. So there was a kind of animated sequence. This is a huge breakthrough. I didn't know it was going to be a huge breakthrough. I was asked to come because I had some some reputation in London for working on animal models and furry things, which goes back to the fact that I learned how to, I, in a sweatshop, to make wigs in London. So this all applied to my, you know, uh, career later on. Um, so they needed somebody to, to, to help make these animal models that transform from one to the other. The computer department was in another building, and it was about eight people in there. And I used to love to go over to see what they were doing. Nobody in the model shop had any idea that computer graphics was going to be any kind of threat to what we were doing. Um, we, we just thought that, that they would, that were interesting what they were doing and that they were going to be kind of adding some kind of decorative enhancement to what we were doing. The model shop was where, where it was all happening, and we couldn't imagine that ever changing. Each job that involved CG, Terminator 2, the Mercury Man, and Terminator 2, and um, there were, uh, that was basically the next big step after Willow. 
we could see more and more that the capacity for what was happening in CG was was growing. And during at the beginning of Jurassic Park, this all exploded, and it was like an earthquake happening in the company. I had because I just found it very interesting to see what they were doing in, CG, in the CG department, these, this team of people, and having had experience with them on Willow, I was very interested to go over and check out what they were doing. So I was kind of welcomed over there. And I um, then it, it, it sort of transpired that as I could see what they were up to when they were developing Jurassic Park, I could see that this shift was going to take me, if I decided that I wanted to do this, it was going to take me to a very interesting place. I also could see that if I did not learn computer graphics, that the model shop was going to become less and less viable, and that is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's impressed me so much while learning about your career is just all the times you leapt before the net was even there. Like when you jumped from London to ILM and even from the model shop to computer graphics. Did you ever deal with imposter syndrome? I know me personally as a young creative, that's something that I deal with all the time. I know you have two daughters in the arts as well. What advice would you give to someone who's dealing with imposter syndrome? I, I've spent my whole life feeling uh, imposter syndrome and yeah. feeling insecure about it and in fact that did not it, it, if anything that increased mm -hmm. the longer that I spent working in computer graphics the more I could see that the, the kids you know the 20 something year olds had this incredible adaptive uh, minds to be able to pick up and learn and retain new software and it became harder and harder for me um, to, to feel that I was qualified uh, I, of course, I talk to people and, and tell them that, and they were like, oh, Jean, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, it seems to be across the board. This is a really common feeling. Partially, I think that is because our business has become more competitive and more intense, and our deadlines are tighter and tighter, and our budgets are smaller, and there's more content. There's a constant sense of you have to do it. Bigger and faster, and every film that came along, that was one of the requirements, was to uh, be able to, to, to have more throughput. So, of course, there's going to be more and more pressure on people working in all aspects of the film business, and I, I, I worry about that, actually. Um, that's not the primary reason that I'm not uh, working in, in, in the, in, at, at ILM in the computer graphics department now, but it definitely contributed to it. Um, and, and I hope, I, one of my hopes is that the, 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 something will happen to give the workers a little bit more of a breathing room. When I was working at, uh, in London on Labyrinth with Jim Henson's company, we were given a year to do prototypes. This idea that you had to have this rush to, you know, complete something and get it done on budget was an anathema there. We, the, the idea was to make something as good as it could be and to have, you know, get, give it the time to evolve. And early on in, in when I was in the model shop at ILM, I also didn't, didn't ever feel that sense that, that there was just this sort of whip cracking. It was really more about constantly about how are we going to improve this? How can we make it better? And people had time to do so. I think there's always a sense of insecurity when everybody, when anybody learns, you know, it takes a step in their career. And I always felt that way. But I think that I felt that way in some ways less because I think the, uh, the pressures were less. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. when I was in my 20s and 30s and, you know, and before, before there, um, so, before there were so many demands uh, on, you know, just churning it out. While we're talking about CG, can you explain what ViewPaint is and what you're actually creating on the computer? Like for those that don't know, including me, what does a ViewPaint supervisor actually do? The texture paint is what, the early days of texture paint were called, it was called ViewPaint. And it was the only place that, that it existed. So it had a name that, uh, I think Dennis Murin came up with this, this name for the software and the, the, the process. Dennis said, and I always liked this because my first job in computer graphics was as a view painter, as a texture painter. And he said that he thought this was one of the major breakthroughs in computer graphics was um, going from um, in Terminator, there was uh, the ability to do very basic painting on uh, a model, but most of it was a shader. And he said for Jurassic Park, they knew they had to take this huge technological leap in so many ways, but in one of them was to be able to make something have, have actually painting on it that would give it scale pattern, you know, a texture, the color, and um, control the amount of specularity on it. And then again, you know, to have it tell a story. I mean, it, the things that texture painting and view paint was, was adding rust and adding, eventually adding hair and doing the things that kind of took the computer perfection out of it. So when, when Dennis says that he thinks that was one of the major breakthroughs for Jurassic, I, I kind of really love that because that was the thing that I love to do as well. Uh, that's I was drawn to it because, I have a friend and the two of us, I don't know who came up with this phrase, but we, we say that um, when you're looking at your render on the screen and you can start to smell it, that's when you know you're getting somewhere. And that's really down to the work that we were doing, that, 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 that Texture Paint was doing. So what you would do is take a, a model that you, sometimes, uh, some people do both. I didn't do much modeling, but you'd get a computer generated model and kind of map out where the paint were gonna, was going to go. And then you would add these details with, uh, we used Photoshop and other programs to take a two-dimensional paint job and then have the software wrap it around and attach it to the model. I know you're obviously a prolific painter. Do you think that's helped you with your view painting skills? I tell people who are looking around at, you know, having a career in this kind of business that I think one of the things I advise them is to use the most simple, you can say, again, you can say crude, but they're not crude kind of materials, and get it into your hands. Use paint, use clay, animate, write a script, do it by hand, um, because then nobody can ever take it away from you. And I think that in some ways this is actually even more relevant now with the advent of AI, which is another huge inflection point in our business. Um, but if you know that you can pick up a, a, a brush or a pencil and you can make something look the way you want it to look, then it doesn't matter what kind of software. And, and, and don't rely on Photoshop and don't rely on animation software. Yes, of course, you need to know those things. But before you do that or as you do that, make sure that you can do it with almost nothing except maybe, uh, you know, charcoal and a piece of paper. 
-hmm. and then you always have it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the advent of AI and how you think it's changing things. Obviously, you did amazing work on the de-aging of Robert De Niro in The Irishman and then more recently Harrison Ford in the new Indiana Jones. Could you talk about how AI is changing the landscape of your work? I, I know just enough to know that AI is going to have huge ripples throughout the visual effects business, throughout every business. What that's going to do to artists is something I, I don't think any of us can predict. Um, I certainly cannot. But what I would advise students is to learn it. At least know what it, know it and know how you might be able to incorporate it and make good use of it. I also think that I'm in great favor of what I see with artists like Carlo Ortiz, who are uh, um, art directors, who are protecting their work. And um, being able, there's a software that, that, that she's using that sort of stamps her work in some way so that it can't be scraped. And so I think both things are really valuable. For one is, 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 is to know it and know what, what, what you can do with it. I personally benefited from knowing about computer graphics. And if I had decided that this was something that I didn't want to take a huge leap to learn, it would have limited my career. The lot, a lot of the people in the model shop were, and rightfully so, really, very frightened about the advent of, of computer graphics. They saw their, their lives change dramatically, and what they thought they were going to be able to do right through to retirement uh, disappear or at least diminish, um, so that they had to scramble and find other ways to make a living to support and, 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 and you know, just basically, you know, keep the wolf from the door. So understandably, it was very stressful, very frightening for a lot of people at, at ILM, not just in the model shop, but in the camera and all sorts of, of uh, you know, really every, every division in the company. I, um, I think this is going to be a really the big challenge for people in, who are getting into the business right now is to how to how to navigate a, the AI work, the, uh, the the Dolly and the other um, software that threatens to take the work away. But my great belief always is that it won't remove the. the uh, Filmmaking is an art form, and, and as an art form, it will need to, you will need to see the hand of the artist, and um, it will depend on people to, to make creative decisions. I don't see that ever changing. I worked on The Irishman to do um, de-aging to Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro, which was one of the great pleasures of my life, was to study them and their work um, to replicate them. And that job could not have been done without AI. Uh, the software was able to um, uh, recreate with um, infrared their animation. Uh, but don't think for a minute that any of that was just to hit a button and um, you had a DH person. The, the, the um, technology that allows for face replacement is um, still in its very early days, and and uh, on the Irishman, also on um, the uh, Mandalorian, and in 
Indiana Jones, which those are three projects I worked on where we were de-aging actors, it was anybody who tells you that that was just a matter of just pushing a button and making the software do it do not understand how much work went into that from artists to create a computer-generated version of these actors so that it could, could um, combine with the technology that fed us the images that we needed in order to have enough resolution, in order to get the nuances and the, the things that the director absolutely wanted to see, um, that absolutely relied on a team of artists who worked hard for a long, long time to create those movies. Okay, I know you said it's not simple like pushing a button, but could you just explain like what are you doing to accompany the AI face software? Where does the AI leave off and you begin? On those particular three projects, which also involved Mark Hamill, um, we, in, 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 we had in each case to work with actors where we had scans of them as they currently were, so we were able to completely capture their data and that technology gets better and better and easier and easier to work with. But w th then there was the next question is like, how do we make them a, a young version of that? And in some in cases like with, when you have really extraordinary actors, um, Robert De Niro looked different in every movie he ever made. And I spent many very happy hours uh, just studying his films and documenting, taking screen grabs and face grabs of, of who he was at each stage of his career. And then coming up with a version of him that was what um, Scorsese wanted for his film. So we had to make as believable as possible computer-generated images of all these actors. And then they were they, the the composite team and the animation team would take um, the parts from both and combine them together to create the final shots. I remember even I didn't even know at that time that you had worked on it, but just like everyone in the industry was talking about the Irishman and and the VFX work that went into making De Niro look younger. So yeah, that's amazing, amazing work. So cool that your team worked on that. Um, did you have a mentor at ILM or early on in your career? Mentoring is a subject that I ha I wish that I had been more aware of the the capacity to find mentors when I was starting out in my career. I think one of the things that ha that I would tell myself as a as a young person is to see who's doing the work better than what you're doing and to do what you can to get to know what they know them and learn from what they're doing i have mentors that don't know they were mentors for me they were people that i admired but when i was early on in my career i used to feel challenged and threatened by that and insecure about that and what i discovered over the years and, and ilm i think harbored ilm allowed for an atmosphere of we share everything. And I think that's another reason why ILM became and is the company that it is, is, is secrecy was really frowned upon. And if you tried to keep your, your area of expertise private and didn't share it, you kind of didn't last there very long. And the thing I discovered is the people who were most innovative were already on to the next thing anyway. So they really weren't threatened by me saying, how did you do this? Or what reference did you pull from? Or can I, you know, can I sit next to you? Can I look at what you're doing? You know, how, asking these questions. 
Um, and, and those, I made great leaps in my career by feeling like take, having the courage to go and, and, and just look hard at what people were doing and learn as much as I could from them. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, as far as being able to learn a new uh, set of tools, ILM gave that to us. Everybody in the model shop was offered an opportunity to train to become a computer graphics artist. And that, when I think about it, was a pretty extraordinary thing that they offered us. And in fact, I'll tell you, there was actually some resistance on both sides. There was resistance in the model shop to learning uh, computer graphics. And it, it, it was so impossible for some of them to imagine themselves sitting in a, in a dark room in front of a screen when everybody was up used to being physical and moving around all the time, um, you know, having it be tactile. Um, but also, the, the guys who were already hired in computer graphics saw those of us who knew nothing being offered this great gift of training and learning and um, having teachers come in and just work with us. And so um, the, this, the leap from going from the model shop over to CG was fraught with barriers. And they were on, uh, not like I said, they were coming from both directions. So trying to kind of navigate how to, to, to become good at CG involved me having to negotiate a fair amount and also to um, out and out um, lie about it because I was t asked by the computer graphics department, if we train you and hire you, you have to commit that you're never going to go back to the model shop again. And I remember absolutely having my fingers crossed between, behind my back and I said, sure, of course, I'll, I'll commit. And I had absolutely zero intention of that. My whole desire was to be able to do both because I really saw this as, uh, as a new set of pencils, a new set of brushes. And um, I wanted for the people that I was working with in the model shop to have an opportunity at least to try it and to feel that they would be welcomed to come in and, and, and have a crack at it and see how they, whether they liked it or not. And then they could base their decision on experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have to talk to you about Yoda. Obviously, Baby Yoda is taking the internet by storm. You famously created the first digital Yoda in Star Wars Attack of the Clones. Can you talk about the work you did on that movie and also that process of, of digitizing Yoda? Yoda, I think, was one of the high points in the film industry when it comes to creating a creature. I think that's undeniable. And what... Uh, Frank Oz and Stuart Freeborn created in London when they created Yoda was something that when I first saw him on the screen, I will never forget it. Because I actually did not know what I was looking at. I remember my brain kind of going into this sort of vapor lock. It was like, well, is that a real thing? Uh, it, it, it can't be a puppet. It, it, it has life in it. What is this thing? And so to have the job of creating a computer-generated version of them, which I, I will not claim ever that we achieved what those two created on the first movie. Maybe part of that was just the shock of seeing something that had never been seen before. Um, but I felt a great deal of um, respect for that character. So uh, I was really honored to be able to work on it and to try as best as I could to, to get it right. 
Um, again, I think now if we were going to make a Yoda for a film, we would do it differently. Baby Yoda, Grogu, was um, this huge success, I think partly because they went back to something that the audience could feel had a sort of, um, there was something very, very tangible about it. He was a puppet, again, but in this case he was an enhanced computer-generated in addition, kind of like we did on the Irishman and, and, and Indiana Jones, the new Indiana Jones. He, it's, it's, it's a, um, a hybrid of the two technologies. And I think in some ways that's when the work is at its very best mm -hmm. is that you have, have the sense of an audience knowing that they, that sense that you could reach out and touch something and also that it has enough, uh, qualities and detail in it that with our eyes now, you know, um, we, we, we can discern when something is not detailed enough um, so the computer can come in and fill in those gaps. Can we talk about the role of color in your work? We don't have to get all color science-y. I just want to know, how do you approach color, whether it's creating three-dimensional objects or just in your personal painting? I, um, I learned from Jim Henson's studio way back when that the best paint jobs had all the colors in them to some degree. Um, and that that would, you could take something that was very flat, like a rubbery, like a Skeksis, you know, from, uh, from um, Dark Crystal, and you could make it look like it had more life in it if it had a myriad of colors in it working together in the right way. And in some ways, I, I was kind of known for that, that um, in my department, I would often have the critique of this looks monochromatic. And I, it, 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 often what it is is there's yellow ochre missing. For some reason that seemed to be something that would drop out and things would have this sort of just cool tones in them. Um, to be very conscious of having the palette have the balance that it needs is, uh, is crucial. And it's, it's crucial for something looking correct on the screen. And it's really easy to make things look too flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting, making Yoda feel lifelike enough that he could just kind of reach through the screen to touch you. That's super cool. Kind of pivoting to early in your career when you talked about working at basically a sweatshop making wigs, what was that experience like? Like, obviously it sounds kind of horrible, but also gave you the skills that you needed to eventually work in the theater, in production design, and then later at ILM. Well, the sweatshop experience was, it was not exactly a sweatshop. We did have a laugh, and, um, but it was definitely in a basement in the West End of London. Um, and I wanted to work in, I looked for work in the theater, but I was an illegal alien. So I had to find a place that was going to pay me cash in hand. And so, you know, I'd get, I'd go and apply for a job in theater and somebody would whisper to me, you know, go check out this place. And so off I'd go down these, you know, little stairs into a basement and uh, they opened, they, they hired me, they paid me almost nothing, but uh, they were happy to have me. So, you know, that made it uh, possible for me to find at least, I knew I just wanted to get a toehold into the entertainment industry. I actually didn't visualize that I'd be working in movies. That seemed like that was way beyond my reach. But um, I, I found the theater to be a, a, a wonderful substitute. And in fact, some of the best memories I have of working in London when, when I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company and uh, doing the same sort of thing, you know, making wigs and facial hair and also 
then you get asked to do other things. Can you, can you be behind the scene? Can you help with this quick change? Can you help make this costume? Can you help paint the set? Um, so just finding a, a toehold in, in, in the entertainment industry was really, that was, that was my goal. And then I was lucky enough to sort of get, when those, I acquired those skills, then another door would open. Mm-hmm. And then another, and the next thing I'm at ILM. <laughs> Do you have any advice for people who are early in their career who want advice on how to make that next thing happen? I tell my kids this. 50% is what you can do, and 50% is people have to want to work with you. Those things are equally important. And skills can be taught, but if you're somebody that people don't want to hire and work with, if you are somebody who just wants to do your own work, and you have the skill set to go make your own film, fine, go and do that. But if you want to be part of a team, you want to be part of a film crew, you have to be somebody that they think of and they will pick up the phone and want to call you because they enjoyed working with you. Uh, but you also have to be able to deliver and um, be reliable. So that's why I tell them, you know, these, these are really the two essential ingredients. I assume obviously someone who wants to work in computer graphic arts or a model shop situation or ILM, there's no exact like climbing the corporate ladder or career progression or major that gets you into a job like that. Do you have advice for someone watching thinking they want to have the career that you had? I would tell anybody who wants to do this for a living to do your own work. Make sure that you always have something in your portfolio. And um, if also, this was a, this is something I learned that if you want to make a movie or you want, you know, that gets you somewhere else that you want to get to is sort of you, you, you want to maybe you want to be a costume designer, but you make a little movie so it will show your work. If you feed people, they will work for free for you and you have to feed them very well. So you make sure you have enough money in your budget that you can make them a really like three square meals a day or at least two where they can sit down and enjoy something to eat. You'd be surprised how many people will will love doing it and will say yes to you. And I so I think that's crucial. I think it's, it's always have your own like if you want to make creatures, make them. You know, sculpt them, paint them, photograph them, so that any time that an opportunity might come up, you've always got something to show. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question. Do you have any wishes or goals for yourself in the next five to 10 years? I know you've just recently retired. What are you working on right now or looking to create in the future? My goals for the next five to 10 years are really two things. You know, one is I want to keep doing what I'm doing, which is I'm back in, my, in the model shop in my, my place that likes closest to my heart, where I'm making my own things and I'm collaborating with people and I'm also painting. I, so what I hope is that, um, literally hope that I can make, remain healthy enough to be able to keep doing that up until, you know, I'm 100 years old. I mean, that, that, that's, that's my hope. Um, the other component I have is of what I want is um, to be able to be useful and put back. My father, right up until his last days, he found out that there were throwing away pastries and day-old bread at the Hy-Vee in Kansas City. And um, he would pick that up twice a week and take it down to a mission in Kansas City and um, donate it to people who were hungry. And I think that 
that that's something that, that's a very tangible component of you, yeah you can donate things but to actually have a kind of hands-on connection where you see that you are being useful to people that's something I really want to be able to, to look back on you know 10 years from now and say that um, my showing up mattered mm -hmm. and I'm working on what that exactly that means right now yeah absolutely well thank you so much for coming on the show Jean it was such a pleasure this was such an amazing episode Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking.